and welcome to another installment of the Blue Collar Economist podcast. I'm Robert McEwen, the Blue Collar Economist. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that uh, uh, a lot of economists and pundits have been talking about, and that's this huge influx of gold and silver into China, and how they are positioned in the event of a fiat currency failure worldwide, mainly dollar and all those currencies that are pegged to the dollar. If they all were to fail and the world was to somehow miraculously return back to a hard money standard, how well positioned China and maybe even India would be in the world market and dominate the world as far as money is concerned. The price revolution was a period of rising prices in the 16th and 17th century Europe. Uh, This gold and silver inflation, we can call it, uh, increased Europe's money stock according to certain estimates by not more than 50%, according to others by up to 500%. Um, However, this happened over a period of 150 years, uh, which gave an average um, growth rate in the money supply from between a third to three and a third percent per annum. Around the year 1500, uh, the total stock of money in Europe was about 3,500 tons of gold and 37,500 tons of silver. And over the next 150 years, Spain imported 181 tons of gold and some 16,886 tons of silver from its mines in South America. Now also during this time, they exported a lot of this uh, precious metal to the Far East and Middle East as well as they were purchasing up these fine silks and other imports that were high-value sought-after items by the wealthy. Now we have to remember that um, prior to this time period, the price revolution, uh, Europe experienced uh, during the Renaissance an, an equilibrium in prices of commodities and labor. Uh, and that was mainly due to things like the bubonic plague. I mean it wiped out like a third of the population of Europe so and unfortunately that did add to some price stability. But this huge influx of precious metal which first arrived in Spain uh, gives us a great opportunity to look at uh, the um, practical implications of inflation. right? Because Spain got the money first it then later uh, of course, some of that money, like I said, was sent off to the Far East and, uh, and Middle East. But then a, a, large mo- a large portion of that had gone up, uh, moved northward towards France and through the Netherlands and then later into England. And every time this new flow of new money went throughout Europe, prices began to rise. And this was something new to people. They never experienced this before, not for generations. Prices were always uh, something that were stable, but now they were going up, and nobody could understand why. It was about this time, when this uh, was all going on, that we uh, discovered a a school of thought in Spain. And this school was known as the School of Salamanca. And uh, we later, now we call them the Spanish Scholastics. It was a group of intellectuals and thinkers uh, who mainly uh, were a part of the Catholic Church, who were trying to describe the world around them at that time. It was ever-changing. Old dogmas and doctrines of the church had had to change because, of, for one thing, the discovery of the New World and of the uh, indigenous peoples of the New World. And other things, 
uh, what we're talking about today mainly is the economic impacts of such things as the quantity of money and uh, because of their work was so similar to what we call now the Austrian school uh, Murray Rothbard uh, often referred to them as proto-Austrians uh, they're the first group of people to actually come up with a, a workable theory of the quantity of money unfortunately a lot of that was lost over time for uh, at least a couple hundred years before it was picked up on again but uh, one of these uh, scholastics from the Spanish school was a man by the name of Navarro and uh, he discovered through his observations that as the money supply increased uh, the prices increased and he thought this is an odd phenomenon why did this happen you would think well more money more spending uh, more stuff why would the prices go down well what happened was he discovered is that the value that people put on the money uh, went down more money there is the least valuable it became and thus more was required to purchase the same goods thus prices went up uh, this is today we call that the quantity theory of money now this went unnoticed for quite a long time until uh, just within 100 or so years ago again people economists picked it back up again but it's sad that these uh, the Spanish scholastics were who were so uh, forward-thinking and had such a great contribution to make in the school of economics were forgotten so why did a massive infusion of silver from the mines of South America leave Spain economically hollowed out uh, compared to the other powers like France and the Netherlands and England uh, they had leaped ahead in terms of productive capacity uh, that partly we can answer that um, this way uh, the new silver that came into Spain uh, enabled Spain to purchase more goods consumer goods and capital goods abroad this is why uh, the Far East and Middle East saw an increase in their money supply because this is what the uh, wealthy in Spain did with their money uh, Spain felt wealthier because they actually were wealthier and they had a larger share than previously uh, on claims of the of gold and silver according to the world's ledger right but because at the margins their society was uh, less well positioned to increase its productive capacity capital flowed to better positioned societies like those in northern Europe and those societies saw a, a, a longer lasting durable increase in wealth again the uh, distributional consequences of the silver infusion uh, made the situation worse because after all the increase in wealth didn't accrue to Spanish society as a whole because uh, Spanish um, artisans and peasants weren't much involved in generating the wealth it, uh, it accrued to the top of the Spanish society the cronies the court uh, those dependent on the court for power and profit uh, because they suffered from inflation but didn't particularly direct uh, uh, didn't participate directly in the influx of the wealth the infusion of silver made ordinary Spanish people poorer and therefore even less able to invest in improving their own uh, productive capacity
not like the, the northern Europeans, out of necessity, did invest in those things and thus had, in, in the end, had a longer lasting uh, wealth effect from all this new money. Let me say this another way. Let's compare the old 15th and 16th century Spain to modern America. Spain was locked into a, uh, a rhythm of consumerism. Those that had to the wealth, the money, uh, purchased things with it. They just spent it. They consumed. They didn't reinvest into the uh, methods of production, something that would be long-lasting. Instead, they bought uh, you know, spices and silks from the Far East and the Middle East. They bought rugs and tapestries. They bought fine wines from France and on and on, imported uh, woolens from England and so on and so forth and didn't invest any of that money, much of it at all, into their own production. Now the Northern Europeans, because they didn't have as much wealth as the, Sp as the wealthy Spanish did, uh, more or less out of necessity had to invest into methods of production. And that uh, uh, investment positioned them for a longer lasting wealth effect that the Spanish lost. That's why we ask, you know, the Spanish Armada and the Spanish Empire was so huge and vast. How did they just suddenly, like overnight, just go into oblivion? That's why. The, the French, the, uh, the Netherlands, and the English uh, were all investing in, into production. Something that was longer lasting. And they weren't out just on a shopping spree like, like the Spanish wealthy were doing. And that's the, that's the uh, in a nutshell, that's why the Spanish Empire failed. Of course, the Spanish Armada being sunk, uh, and so on and so forth. But economically speaking, that's what happened to Spain. They never did recover. They never really had the, had the, uh, uh, the, the money or the uh, capital to go into South America and really invest into South America other than to exploit it. Not like England and France did in the... In, uh, in North America. Now there's a lesson to be learned here because this is the trend America is falling into now. Uh, our, our interest is now because of Keynesian economic theory is spending. That's what we do. We buy. We import. We import from China. We import from other markets around the world, and there's very little productive capacity in the U.S. anymore. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves going by the way of Spain, especially since uh, the dollar, the U.S. dollar, like the silver back then, is uh, seeing a huge influx, not only here, but worldwide. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, uh, I wanted to compare the old Spain to modern China because China is, is also at this time importing mass quantities of gold and silver into their country just like just like Spain's doing had been doing and there's been questions arising you know if the dollar were to collapse overnight say uh, all those peg currencies to the dollar were to go down and uh, uh, hard money advocates got their way and uh, we went on a gold and silver standard uh, wouldn't wouldn't the same thing happen to China? Uh, wouldn't they see massive price increases? And uh, what would happen to prices throughout the rest of the world since the rest of the world isn't as highly positioned in gold and silver like the Chinese are? Would their prices go down? 
And uh, there would be some of that, I would think. In my analysis, I believe there would be some of that. But we have to understand that China has a pr highly productive infrastructure. They are the world's producers at this time. And an uh, infusion of hard money assets like gold and silver, and then that, that asset become money, I think it would only increase China's product, uh, productive capacity and would position them even better in the world than they already are, as far as that's concerned. But then again, we would have an equilibrium because the Chinese would still spend their money. And knowing they have to export all their goods, the importing countries would have to then purchase that with something. That would mean China would then have to purchase products from other countries with their gold and silver, which would add to the influx of the metal into those countries. So there would be an equilibrium over time. It wouldn't happen overnight, not a, maybe not in a year, but maybe over a decade, some time frame. And you'd see a water level effect, like a water in a bathtub. Gold and silver throughout the world would begin to equalize some. Well, it wouldn't be exactly even. Those who have the highest productive capacity would, of course, maintain a higher claim on gold and silver, since uh, their economies would be in better position. But then other countries would just have to catch up, just like the East did today. They caught up and surpassed. But at the same time, we have to remember that uh, China is still a communist country. They're not, they're not a, a free market by any stretch of the imagination. It's a command economy, centrally planned. And what would the Chinese produce? How would they know what to produce and what quantities? What do they know... Uh, as far as other cultures around the world, what they'd want. If all the production capacity was centered in China, what new inventions would come out of China? What new innovations? There aren't any now. The things they produce today are innovations and inventions that are uh, researched and developed in other countries and then just manufactured in China. So I think the rest of the world would still play a key role in production. I don't think there would be a shutout that wouldn't be beneficial for the Chinese nor for anybody else that the Chinese shut out the rest of the world. Uh, it is a global economy and I think it would still remain one. Uh, I think uh, the roles that other countries would play would be pretty similar to what they are today. I think in the United States you'd still see a high-tech uh, lead type development going on and maybe even in some of that in India but uh, Europe as well. But um, Time will tell, I guess. I mean, we'll have to see how this plays out, how long the dollar will last as the world's reserve currency. That is the big question, how long the con will continue and how long much confidence is in the this con called the U.S. dollar. And with that, I'm going to start to wrap this up. This has gone on uh, long enough, and I appreciate your, lis your listening in again to this installment of the Blue Collar Economist. And remember, you can check out the website at www.thebluecollareconomist.com that's all one word and uh, check me out on Facebook and also on Twitter and until next time have a good day